Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to get the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to tell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm really, really. You know, I wish I had thought of that. I never thought of anyone then. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my dreams. Good morning, all you entrepreneurs and small business people out there. You are listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. The show really has two goals. The first is to share helpful information and resources because I, as an entrepreneur, have made so many mistakes. And if I can help those of you out there not make some of those mistakes, then I've been successful. The second goal is to inspire. I found being an entrepreneur confusing and often lonely. Sometimes you have no idea if you're on the right track or not, or where to turn for good advice. So to help with both of those goals, to help you, each of you entrepreneurs, be more successful, I have guests on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Kevin Finke. He is the founder and owner of a company called Experience Willow, and he's going to share with us how he started his company and what it does. And along the way, we'll learn some things about gender diversity and gender inclusion. So with that introduction, Kevin, thanks so much for being with me today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you, Doris. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to hook up with a fellow Illini. I know I was saw your uh, post on Illini link looking for fellow Illini who are entrepreneurs and small business owners and uh, willing to share their stories and their insights. I, w- I jumped at the chance. So I'm really excited to be here. Well, I am glad to feature fellow Illini. You know, one of the things that resonated with me was just that you, like me, were concerned about gender diversity and inclusion. And I know we're going to get to that, but first I want you to spend just a couple minutes sharing with listeners, what is the Willow experience and what are the primary services that you offer? Sure. I I feel like to tell the story of my company and to really talk about the company, I have to talk a little bit about myself and where I came from and the kind of person I was um, even uh, before the University of Illinois. I, I'm a downstater. I'm not from Chicagoland. I'm a downstater who grew up in East Central Illinois in a small farm town called Casey, Illinois. And uh, it was a wonderful place to grow up. And today, I encourage anyone who's close to Casey or who loves to get on the road, go look at the big things in a small town. It's a wonderful small town that really has gentrified itself in the last uh, 10 years and has lots of fun things to do there and have set many uh, Guinness World Records in terms of these big things that they've built, everything from the world's largest uh, rocking horse to the world's uh, largest functioning mailbox, the largest pitchfork. I mean, there's things that goes on and on. But um, <laughs> growing up in a, in a, I think, I think that I think that's great. You know, I grew up in a small farming town too in Northwest Illinois. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you share that. I think that's wonderful because I don't know how big Casey is. My hometown was about 4,200 people. Maybe when I left, it had two stoplights. Um, <laughs> 
in high school. I was a student leader of several organizations. I was valedictorian of my class. I was a state champion runner in track. And I, wow. I know, and it was a, it's a wonderful story, a wonderful childhood. But deep down inside, Doris, I was unhappy. Although I had friends, I found myself alone a lot of times. And when I was alone, I was an escaper. I escaped into wonderful worlds in my imagination, in my, in my bedroom, in the cornfields behind my house. I would get on my bicycle and ride for hours. And I was quite independent. But that sense of independence and imagination and curiosity is seriously what powers me today. And so I look back at this town, you know, and this experience I had growing up where I felt a sense of belonging, but I really didn't see anyone like me. I was very yeah. self-aware. Yeah. And, and, and I look back and I said, wow, if I hadn't grown up there, would I have the sense of curiosity that I have today? Would I have the imagination that has driven me to be a creative, you know, inside industries like marketing and human resources. I'm always known as kind of a creative entrepreneurial spirit in these industries where I find myself working in. And, and so I look back very fondly at it and I accept it what, for what it was. And I, I, I feel blessed to have been there, even if it was sort of a, a lonely experience at times, it gave me something, it fueled something in me that has stayed with me in my core. You know, it really defines who I am, especially my values. And I tell you that because I had many mentors through my life and I had a few mentors there. I had my track coach, Coach Carol, who pushed me uh, to physical limits and mental limits that I never thought were possible. Um, Mrs. Brown was my science teacher. She pushed me academically like no other teacher or professor I've ever had. She made me want to learn and learn more. And then I had Miss Richards and Miss Richards was, she was just like the best. She was our speech and English teacher. Uh, she was our drama teacher. She headed up many of our fine arts programs. And that was a wonderful outlet for me where I got to find people a little different than I would find on the basketball court or the track, or I might find in, you know, quiz bowl, scholastic bowl, as we called it then. <laughs> um, she ignited something in me and she also taught us mass media. And mass media was a study of television and radio and newspaper. It was during, um, you know, the er uh, early mid mid eighties, and I fell in love with media. So when I, you know, got accepted to go to the University of Illinois, now it's called the College of Media. At the time, it was called the College of Communications. Um, and I got my degree in advertising, and I think that was inspired much by, you know, her. I spent twenty years in marketing. I started my career actually at uh, Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, not in marketing. Um, I was actually in attractions. I was actually a host of different attractions in uh, Frontierland uh, there, <laughs> um, right in Orlando, Florida, which yeah. is a lot of fun. <laughs> but it began my relationship with big business and understanding that I could be a professional inside corporate America. It, it showed me that I had the goods. I might've come from this small town, but I had the goods. I could stand on my own. I could hold my own inside a company like Disney. And I actually, when I left Disney, I came back to the university. I'd already been out of school for about a year, but I went to the college, one of my college deans, and I asked if I could uh, interview, you know, on campus with uh, people that, you know, were a year younger than me and two years younger than me. And they said, absolutely. And so I signed up and got my first job in Detroit. You know, I cut my teeth in the automotive industry the first 10 years, calling on big brands like uh, General Motors, Daimler Chrysler. Did I wasn't a traditional ad guy. I was an event guy. I was a sponsorship guy. I believe I look back at that and these worlds that I had created for myself, these 
experiences that I had created for myself and escaped into, I started creating for brands. You know, I, I supported a PGA sponsorship that Buick had for several years. We were the company and the team that signed Tiger Woods to the Buick brand for a major sponsorship. And we followed him around when he was at his peak. Um, I left Detroit actually working for the same company that I was calling on General Motors, took me to Atlanta. And this is where my home is. It's, I've been here for the last 20 years. When I came here, of course, there's no bigger brand in the world. Well, actually, that's not true today. There are some bigger brands, but Coca-Cola is, is an amazing company that is at the heart and the pulse of Atlanta. And I got to call on them. And I went from just working on you know four PGA tournaments to all of a sudden, I was helping Coca-Cola with its Olympic presence in Salt Lake City, in Sydney, Australia. Oh, um, I was wow. working on the NCAA and their sponsorship when it kicked off um, in the early 2000s. I supported um, a lot of other properties like NASCAR. I got into their entertainment world. So I, I had a team of 20 or 30 people at this company called Momentum Worldwide. We were kind of the presence marketing, the experience, the special event sponsorship arm. We were doing a lot of work in retail as well, you know, helping Coke have a great presence inside grocery stores and big box stores and things like that. So this is where I really spent my time for the first 20 years. Um, it was in the year 2002, I became a managing partner in a new firm. Um, the 2000 census was very eye-opening for uh, businesses and for marketers. It was, I think, the first time where people really started to realize that America was changing, becoming a more diverse America. And that's about the time when non-white births started to exceed white births, right? Yes, absolutely. And this company that I was part of really growing to what it became, which was one of the best agencies in the world. I mean, we were at the top of every best agency list for 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007. We were doing amazing work for brands like Coca-Cola and Heineken and all of the brands within the Diageo portfolio, like Johnny Walker and Jose Cuervo. I was calling on Unilever. I was calling on Kraft Foods in Chicago. <laughs> I was calling on Wendy's in Columbus. That just sounds so amazing. I mean, it's yeah. kind of like, why would you leave that to do something else? Well, that unhappiness that I had felt as a child, I started to feel in my own work. I would come to work and the people I work with and people in marketing, and especially on the agency side, because I was calling on my clients, they're so in love with what they do. They love their work. They love these creative cultures that they belong to. They love being an engine for helping these brands grow. And they would come and they would read the trades every day and they would submit into award competitions and they would do all of this. And I just sat at my desk. I wouldn't even open a trade. I wasn't even interested. And, and ironically enough, in the company I had started, we were focused on non-white consumers. I don't want to say non-white, that's not the right word, but we were not focused on mainstream marketing. We were focused on what was called and still called multicultural marketing. Okay. And multicultural marketing was helping brands, big brands. I think of Home Depot, one of our longest standing clients. We helped them introduce themselves into the U.S. Hispanic market. And marketing to a U.S. Latino is different. It's different because of who they are the kinds of trades that they over-index in. We used to call them prosumers because not only were they consumers, they're here to live the American dream and to do the best things for their families and especially for their children. And they have multi-generations you know, in their homes. 
And the home itself is coveted and it's something that they want to improve. They want to make it to the best for their families. But at the same time, many of them leave that home every day and they go work in landscaping and painting, contract trade. And so they're also professional. And so this is a really important consumer market, which they called the prosumer. So we were the ones helping brands like Home Depot get into the hearts and minds of those consumers and say, you should choose us. We know you better. We are giving you services and products that are more relevant. We're giving you, you know, platforms and programs or supporting your communities. Come shop us before you shop Lowe's or before you shop Ace or who our competitors are in the places where you shop and work. So that company that was doing this work was about 400 strong. It was 95 plus percent Latino. Here I am, you know, a non-Latino, non-Spanish speaker leading a team of 30 people doing this work for all of these. And I felt I felt accepted and embraced by them. Um, but at the same time, I also felt like I didn't belong. <laughs> if that makes sense. And it, was... <laughs> it, it, it does. And I think it I, having come from a small town where I didn't feel like I belonged either, I can certainly relate. I mean, you sometimes wonder, am I, am I okay? Because I feel like I belong, but then at the same time, I feel like I'm outside watching all of this. Yeah. And you're right, Kevin, you're walking red carpets with Jennifer Lopez. You're turning the the red carpet green at the Grammys on behalf of your Heineken sponsor. You're building and, and delivering and activating the 150th birthday parties for Johnny Walker. You're doing all of this with like A-list celebrities, A-list, you know, sports stars. Um, you're working with some of the best people in the business. Why, why would you not be happy? You're making the most money you've ever made. You have the biggest title you've ever had. You're, right. You're you, have, you have all sorts of external validation of yeah. your worth and your creativity and at the top of your game. So what changed? I got, I got sick. I got the shingles. And it, oh, shook no. me, it shook me to my core in 2007. It was the wake up call. I'm a very healthy person. <laughs> I have not called in sick very many times. And that's not because I work while I'm sick. I just knock on wood, tend not to be ill or sick. So I'm also a little bit of a hypochondriac because of that, probably. And um, and it shook me to my core. And the doctor's like, what's going on? You must be stressed out. I'm like, yeah, I'm stressed out. He's like, you need to talk to someone. And so I really didn't go get a therapist. Um, I kind of turned inward. I started writing a lot. Um, I found meditation and yoga. I became yeah. a vegetarian, which I still am today. I refound my bicycle from my youth. Not the actual bicycle, but the act of getting on a bike and yeah. riding the bicycle. and my curiosity, my creativity, my brain, my everything started to open up. Plus I got a lot of endorphins and adrenaline. I started getting happier, started getting in better shape. And as all of that was going on, the recession happened, the, you know, the crash happened. And this is 2007, 2008, 2008, 2009. And when companies start cutting budgets, one of the first places they cut is marketing. And the first thing they're going to cut in the marketing budget is the non-mainstream marketing. And so we started losing clients and then we started losing talent. And then we started just going after any kind of client just to stay alive. And we started to lose our culture. And that was a wake up call for me as well. I started to realize I, I needed to get out. And I told myself when I get back in, I'm going to take some time off, but when I get back in, I'm getting back in on my own terms and I'm going to bite the bullet and do this on my own. 
I'm going to build a company on my own. And that's what led me to start Experience Willow. I left, it was late 2010 when I left. I took off 2011. And the end of 2011, my phone starts ringing. I have a, a company that I've worked with out of Orlando and they were like, hey, we have a, we're trying to build this creative, I think they called it even a dream team. And it's going to be like six to eight people, but we're going to help SeaWorld rethink SeaWorld. I was like, okay, well, I'm not working, but you know, but I'll, I'll try that. And lo and behold, I proved to myself that I could be an independent consultant because it went really well. And I loved the work. And then a few months later, I got a call from one of the other managing partners at the firm that I had left. And he said, Kevin, I'm, I'm now a chief marketing officer inside the Fox company, and we're starting a new Spanish language network. It's going to compete against the big guys like Univision and Telemundo. We're going to do it the way, you know, Fox has done it in, in uh, the mainstream market. You know, would you help me launch this network? I want you to do all the work and event work and sponsorship work, all the work we're doing with communities to spread the word of the network, to take our property out into, um, into the U.S. Hispanic market. Would you help me, you know, with this? And I said, well, I've got to start my company first. <laughs> so I said, I will. I'm really intrigued. The one thing I want to make sure, though, is that I wanted to get back in on my own terms. So is there a way that eventually we can talk about my helping you with things like corporate social responsibility? Because I wanted you to make more good in the world. So if yeah. there's something that can be CSR related with the community, I would love to explore that. And we did that work. You know, it was people from my network calling me and asking me to start working and being on projects that really, you know, was an impetus for me starting Experience Willow. How did you come up with the name? Well, serendipity. <laughs> so, so listen to this story. The Willow is very symbolic for me. And I'm a visual creative. I see vision in my head. Um, so I'll see a, a sponsorship activating itself and I'll see what the experience looks like. And then it's my job to work with my production and teams to make things happen, right? To bring my vision to life. And I'm a very visual creative. And it's probably because when I was a child, I was knee deep in my imagination, envisioning things that weren't even there. And in this time when I was um, rediscovering my health in 07, 08, 09, the willow was everywhere. I would read something in the, and there would be a reference to a willow, or I would be flipping through something and there would be a willow tree, or we would go to a new city like Asheville, North Carolina, which is one of my favorite places, and there were willows everywhere. Well, the willow is a particularly flexible and graceful it's a, quite a creative tree because it has yeah. a lot of very interesting survival strategies. Yeah. You know, and you know why? And I didn't know this, Doris. So what do I do? I'm curious. I start learning. It was the time <laughs> in my, it was the time in business where this thing called Google was actually <laughs> starting to happen. So I was like, Willow, Willow cultural symbols, Willow symbolism. And I started reading all these things. I went back to books that I had from Mrs. Brown science class in Casey, Illinois. I had tree identification. I've studied several religions. So I had something from the, uh, the Celtic Druids that are like this tree oracle thing. I started looking <laughs> through all these things and I started seeing themes. The ones that you're talking about right now were the, some of the themes I discovered. Things like willows are portrayed as feminine spirit. They will normally be seen that way, much related to the weeping willow and other willows, which, by the way, love to plant themselves next to streams yep. and bodies of water. And Absolutely. because of their water intake, that's why they're so flexible. But they represent Absolutely. femininity in many yep. cultures. They also represent creativity and divination and all sorts of different things. 
There are indigenous cultures that will, you know, sleep with like the boughs of the willow tree under their pillows, hoping to be inspired by dream. But the one that got me was, and you said this, survival. There's an acid that runs through the bark of the willow tree. I knew that willow was part of the Salix family of trees. I had learned that in Mrs. Brown's class and that had stuck with me, but I'd never realized that it was named for the acid that runs, Salic acid that runs through its bark. And salic acid is the key ingredient in acetosalic acid, which is aspirin. And so it's used to heal, to relieve pain. Even in these initial moments, I felt called to, and I'm just going to use my words, I was being called by the, I call it the sacred feminine. I was being called because I needed to amplify feminine voices and feminine ideals and values. I felt that from the very beginning. And I felt I was doing that to help heal the world. And that sounds like a grandiose mission and purpose and vision, but that is what drove me because I didn't understand what that meant. And I'm curious, I'm a learner. So I'm like, I got to just get busy and see how this thing plays itself out, you know? And today, the work that we're doing is less about the consumer world. I'm working with the same kinds of brands and companies. Most of our companies, you know, are um, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 employees or even bigger. We're working with really big brands um, like uh, Cox, who has 60,000 employees. Uh, we work, um, we've done a ton of work with NCR, also located here in Atlanta. Um, they, you know, have, um, I think, around 40,000 employees. So we've worked with some really big brands. But instead of calling on their marketing teams and helping them build consumer events and experiences, in 2014, while I was doing some work in that space, actually, for NCR, a chief people officer, the new name for a chief HR officer, um, took on some new responsibility, which actually included marketing and comms. And I started to meet with her. I was contracting, you know, inside uh, NCR. And as we talked, she said, Kevin, you're the most interesting person I've ever, marketing person I've ever met. Like you talk about brand and marketing so differently than other people in the space. And a lot of times you relate it to culture and having your employees are the ultimate personification of your brand, that they have to live the brand, that it, the brand wouldn't even exist. The products, the services wouldn't even exist if it weren't for the people. So it's the values, it's the skills, it's all of the things of the people and how they live our brand values that create products that reflect those values, that reflect our, our company culture. And I want you to stop working in marketing and I want you to come over here, report directly to me as a contractor. And I want you to help me think about our company culture, rethink it. I want wow. you to help me rethink the experiences and events that we create for our own people. You know, how, how perfect though, for somebody with an advertising background to help change culture, because in a lot of culture change, people are, I don't want to say pedantic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a big word. They're very, um, sort of methodical about it, you know? Okay. So now we got to have awareness training and we've got to yep. implement this flavor of the month and having worked in big companies and some small ones too, you know, people get pretty cynical about that. <laughs> and, and I think it's brilliantly insightful of your client to realize that advertising is, is about changing people's behaviors and impressions 
but it's just damn sneaky. It's kind of like the <laughs> difference between hitting people over the head with a hammer and coming up from behind them, yeah. <laughs> them over the head with a hammer. So as I started this work with her, I still work with her today. She's our largest. Um, she has le since left NCR. She's now on Wall Street. She's the chief people officer for a fintech company called IEX Group. Um, they run a stock exchange and they're you know a, a technology company, much, much smaller. But she still remains my mentor, my coach, my number one client. I love the work. And she, many times, you know, she allows me freedom to, and I get to work directly with all of her leaders um, and helping them think through their strategies and their experiences that they're creating. And I literally, every time I'm being interviewed, you know, she's, she's one person I always have to say, you know, Andrea Ledford has been a rock for me and has inspired me to a space that I've never been more alive, Doris. I've never felt more purposeful and meaningful. I've never felt my work has been worthwhile. Why? Because I'm focused on creating great workplaces. Yeah. And guess what the number one human activity is today on the planet? Work. And guess what people feel about work and the companies they work for and the leaders they work for? Not very positively. The levels of employee engagement are yeah. pretty depressing. Very depressing. So how do you go about changing a company's call? I mean, yeah. I personally think it has to start at the top and that's often very difficult yes. because I have seen over and over again, CEOs and senior management teams are like, well, now, you know, you need to make this culture change happen. And it's like, well, you know, but the problem is you're not loving the culture. Yeah. Yeah. So when I started this work, I went back immediately to my experience from 2002 to 2010. I didn't realize at the time that I was falling in love with culture, working at a multicultural agency. We were part of, at that company, founding something called the American Latino Study. We were studying what it means to be Latino in America, in the United States of America, and what do they bring from their countries of origin as they hold on to their cultural norms and values from those countries? How are they assimilating or what we might have called acculturating into this? How, are they, how is that changing who they are? How is it changing when they have children and children are going into school systems and bringing that back, that American culture back into the home? We studied that. When I did the work, I started to realize that businesses hijacked the word. I believe they've hijacked the word, culture. Cultures have been around for tens of thousands of years. We have right. been organizing ourselves into cultures, into right. tribes, communities. This is what we do. It is, a, it is a human longing, a human need to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And so as I stepped right. back from that and I said, okay, well, Andrea, you've got a group of people, 40,000 people. What unites them? Well, what unites cultures? It doesn't matter if it's a work culture a sports culture, a religious culture, a family culture, a national, regional, local culture. At the heart of all cultures is what I call the shared story. And the shared story is the story that binds you. Many times it's made up of, of several stories, parables, morals, whatever those things are. Right. But, but this shared story is very clearly articulates the beliefs of this culture. Yeah. Which is, which is powerful and it's a good thing and it can be a bad thing too. Yeah. People like finding people that they have a shared set of values or a shared 
narrative, I yeah. guess, for lack of a better word, right? I think that I think that's so true. You know, um, you know, at, at the heart of the shared story that kind of binds these cultures together, our beliefs, they are values. I think the best cultures who know who they are have no problem articulating those things. And when I say the cultures have them, like they're written down somewhere, they've been archived, they're they're all of all of, around them. Um, they they are embraced and lived by their cultural members, their cultural group members. And and what happens when you start to act out on your beliefs and you act out on your values, you start to behave in certain ways. Yeah. And you start then building systems, practices. You start leaving behind artifacts. You have rituals, ceremonies. And by the way, that might sound very anthropological, and it might feel very much like we're talking about a tribe in South America or Africa. But the yeah, fact or, that or is, some some Cro-Magnon tribe, right? <laughs> right. But do you know how many rituals and ceremonies play themselves out every day at work? The artifacts of work the workplaces, how they're decorated, what they look like, yep. the products and services that people create, those are artifacts. Right. Cultures are cultures. It doesn't matter. And so as I began this work and my narrative started to build, what I started to realize is that the companies that are celebrated for their culture, there is something internal that people feel. And where I believe that is, is a sense of belonging. The thing that I haven't had a lot in my life Here's yeah. the guy who's lacked belonging, helping people find belonging. <laughs> but that is it. You know, without getting political here, you know, it's tough in our society here in the United States. And I think that's probably true even in some countries like the UK, where there's a huge push pull about what the narrative is supposed to be. Right. There's a group of very large segment of the population that wants things to be kind of the way they've always been, maybe a little backward looking like we don't really want to change a lot of stuff because we had it good. And then there's the group of people who are like, hey, it ain't ever going to be like that. It's the future and the future should look like this. You know, I think it's hard for people to find culture and sense of belonging with that kind of, uh, you know, ripping at the fabric of what it is to be an, an American, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And it occurs to me that maybe some of the answer is that things need to get more local. Maybe that's kind of what you're saying, too, with companies and their culture. Yeah, you know, well, even within company, and, and by the way, when I'm working with a company of 1500, so different than working with a company with 15,000 or 100, because what you're doing is in, in cultural change work and the DEIB work that I do, you know, it is transformational. And we do not like to change. <laughs> I think that's true of pretty much every <laughs> humans. Why? Because we have these brains, and these brains have bias built into them for a reason. They've kept us around for, you know, hundreds, if not 200,000 years. You know, we have over 150 recognized biases in the, in the human brain. I don't talk about all of those in my work. I kind of zero in on a few that I think are at the heart of some of the issues I find within company cultures. But um, bias is our brain's way of recognizing pattern, conserving energy, of keeping us alive and safe. Yeah. Um, that's why we have bias. We have bias in our brains and it's actually helped us. Right. What it hasn't helped us is as we've built systems and practices in business and government and all those, we've had biased brains doing that. And there has been groups in power and having their voices, their ideas, their beliefs, their values, maybe 
you know, putting in systems and practices and a shared experience that honors those, but it doesn't honor everyone. And so that's really hard work to change, you know, when you go inside a company and you have to start changing systems and practices. It's just our brains don't want that, you know. Well, and and you've got to layer on to that the fact that technology mm. is pushing people to change and companies to change very rapidly. You know, I'm waiting for the dialogue about technology because it's all been sort of focused on what can we do as opposed to really what should we do? Because the human brain is not really well situated, nor are most organizations as currently put together. They're not really set up to deal with constant, utter change. Yeah. Two things come to mind as you're talking about this, Doris. First is, I'm I, because, and you said this earlier, I feel like culture starts at the top, and it does. People look up. They look to managers and leaders at all levels to see how they're behaving, and that is setting the norm, the, the cultural norms for the company. And what we're seeing inside business today is that the employee is being empowered with tools and platforms and opportunities to provide feedback, both internally and externally, (laughs) because they're not shy about sharing their perspectives or the experience they had with others. They want people to know what it's like. If you follow a company called Edelman and their trust barometer, you know, they are watching trust basically decline in all of our major institutions. But the one saving grace right now is business. People do believe that business will hold a moral arc. It used to be the most respected, trusted voice inside businesses were leaders. So when a leader stood up and talked externally or internally, they were listened to and believed at a much higher rate than they are today. The actual most respected and trusted voice inside companies today is the employee. The common employee that just the the contributor, they want to hear their story. They trust another person to tell them the stories, the narratives, the experience they're having inside another company or inside their company. Hence the power of like Glassdoor, right? I mean, everybody who looks at a company to go work for them, the first place they go look or one of the first places is Glassdoor to see what other employees have said. Yeah. and, And because... I call it HR and the practice of HR is becoming consumerized. I'm getting ready to lead and workshop at a a conference coming up in the next few months. And it's about employer branding. And employer branding is the branding of a company as a best employer, an employer of choice. Apple has dominated technology markets and being a technology of choice. And we understand that like consumer marketing, we get that. What now brands and companies are being challenged with is, oh, wow, I have to manage my brand as an employer because it matters. If I want to compete in this complex world, if I want to attract the best talent, you know, the right talent, then I've got to have control of the narrative. I need to let people know we would do like value proposition work for employees and sub-employee groups. So like, that's a really important part of a brand that a company now is their employer brand, you know, and inside that is who are these people that work here? You know, we have a multi-generational workforce, five generations in the workforce, more diverse than it's ever been before because of opportunity. It's more diverse than it's ever been, especially when it comes to race, ethnicity, gender. But, you know, systems and practices aren't always equitable for race, ethnicity. You know, I'm a member of the LGBT community. I own a a minority certified diverse business. I'm, you know, a, a proud member of the LGBTQ community. And many times 
I have many community members who are not comfortable expressing who they are at work, right? They're lacking, like many other people, race, ethnicity, gender, a sense of belonging, a sense that I can be myself, a sense that I'm at this workplace that's that's fair and impartial and values my voice as much as anyone else's voice. And yeah. those are the problems at the core of cultural issues today and DEI issues. You know? Well, so what happens when people can't express who they are at work from a cultural standpoint, racial, sexual, religious, yeah. go, go through all the different facets that we have. What happens yeah. if people can't be themselves at work? Well, one, you're not getting their best work. <laughs> like, so they'll start to disengage. And, you know, engagement being kind of the sense of connection and belonging you feel to this company uh, and to the people that you work with every day, they'll start to give less discretionary effort. Um, they'll start being less proud of that company and maybe not sharing as much socially, um, externally or even internally. They'll stop doing extracurricular work or taking on extra projects. They'll do exactly what they need to do to try to get by, to keep making money, to not, you know, um, be in a situation where they might be fired, but they're probably looking eventually to leave. So their intention right. to stay decreases over time. Right. And, right. and that's what happens. You are, you know, you're not getting the best work from them. And there's been, you know, a lot of talk about the great resignation, the great yes. quit, but it would be interesting to see if there is a correlation. Maybe somebody's already done that. I haven't yeah. seen it. I have have you seen, seen much about that? I have for gender. Women are leaving the work for or their companies at much higher rates than men. So gender-wise, more women the, through the pandemic and through the world we find ourselves in today are leaving to either go home to be with their families and their children. They're leaving to go back to school to get another degree. They're leaving to go to another company that are even more proud of who maybe treats women more equitably, you know, um, and, and with their systems and practices. They're you know, leaving to start companies. That's yes, they are. that's been clear is that the number of women-owned businesses and women of color who have started yes. businesses, that is the fastest demographic of new entrepreneurs in this country. Yeah. And I would say, I know that our, even our, my community, there's a, a growth in small businesses, even inside the LGBTQ community. As I, you know, study data from the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce and Out Georgia, which we are proud members of as a diverse business, you know, we, we also over index and our lesbian and uh, other, you know, uh, uh, groups within the LGBTQ community are also starting businesses at higher rates as well. So they're ta they're doing what I did, Doris, in 2010. They're taking it back, back control. I'm done getting my strengths, my talents, my skills, my blood, my sweat, my tears to companies that don't treat me fairly, that don't offer me the same opportunities, that don't care about people as much as I think they should be in this world that we find ourselves, this stressful world that you know we find ourselves in today. And they're taking it in control back into their own hands, right. looking for other companies that will honor them and help hopefully create a more sense of well-being and, and, and belonging in them, or they're going out and starting their own, you know? That's so how, how, how do you help companies improve their diversity and inclusion to make those different groups of people feel more engaged and accepted? Yeah. I'm working with a handful of clients right now, specifically in this space. And one of the first things, you know, you have to have a perspective and a perspective leads to have a vision of what you believe 
sometimes that vision extends outside the four walls of work. And, and, you know, some companies are becoming more activist oriented, especially companies like in the technology sector. Many of them are voicing their concerns over social you know, justice issues and other social issues. And you, you see that play itself out uh, every day. But what I always tell my clients are, Hey, don't start talking outside. And, and like, I would, I would make sure that I'm dealing with what's I'm in my control, this company, our systems, our practices, our rituals, our ceremonies, our shared experience. We need to make sure that this is more just, that, that this is more equitable, that this is more fair and inclusive, that we need to work on this. And so the first thing we have to do is articulate a vision. And from that vision, we start to have some outcomes. And I lead clients through a strategic process to actually kind of create a DE&I strategy. What that does is it builds a perspective and a narrative about what this company is thinking and, and it starts to set the tone of what they're going to start evolving, changing, transforming. And so we, we compare this work sometimes to sustainability. Sustainability is another topic that has woven itself through all facets and all functions of business. We believe that DE&I should have the same seat at the table that sustainability has. Yeah. Because ultimately, this is about not taking care of the planet. This is about taking care of human beings, right. and like, especially right. the human beings that are in your control, meaning right. within your culture, right? And so this is what's so important. And so we have to get leadership aligned and vulnerable because that's really what this movement, DE&I, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, some people add the B and the J, belonging, justice to their acronyms. But I think at the heart of this is about companies and leaders becoming more open, transparent, vulnerable, courageous. And these are things that are not easy for human wow. beings and more empathetic. For me, these very sometimes feminine qualities, nurturing kind of qualities. <laughs> the reason I feel like I was called into my business was called into existence to, to amplify. I feel like that's really what is at the heart of that work. And so how you do that is starting with leadership, having the vision, then also understanding what are the behaviors we're doing well that promote inclusivity and belonging? How are we doing on those as leadership teams and what could we start improving? And some of the many times that work is around bias, um, mm -hmm. self-awareness and bias. It's about, it's about training them to have critical and courageous conversations with their people because um, DE&I work is uncomfortable for many leaders. It's just, a, you know, it's uncomfortable yeah. having hard conversations in general. And then you layer onto it things like race and ethnicity and gender, and it gets even more murky and dark, you know? Well, so it, it's, it's hard to know sometimes... I think the vulnerability is, that's a wonderful way to put it, because I think it requires a willingness to say stupid things and admit you're going to say some stupid and possibly insensitive things. You know, we all have, as human beings, biases. I mean, I think there's been a lot of companies lately focusing on implicit bias yes. and and we all have it. I mean, I, I'm going to just put it out there. I made a stupid assumption. I got your first email and you said, I'm a certified minority business. You know what I immediately thought? You know what I thought, don't you? <laughs> I think. I ahead. thought you were black. That was <laughs> the first thing that popped into my head. Now, 
Was that right? No, it was not. So it's embarrassing to think that you think, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a curious person. I'm an enlightened person. And then you make that kind of assumption and you catch yourself and maybe you don't catch yourself. Maybe someone else catches you. You feel stupid, you know, Mm -hmm. and then you start to think, well, maybe I shouldn't even say anything because I'm going to say something really stupid. Yeah, I might get canceled. Right. You know, like, right. It's, it's, you know, and I don't want to say rightfully so or rightfully not, but shouldn't we care about getting as much control and awareness of this brain that is so wonderful and makes us who we are today? But the fact that you were even aware of that, I have to train leaders how to be more mindful and aware that they even have bias. Yeah. Like they, and they don't like to think they're, I don't have bias. I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh, but all, oh, but we all do. Yes. All, all. And, and, you know, one of our bias is an inclusion bias. Absolutely. That's one of our 150 unconscious bias is an inclusion bias. And that bias says to us every day, beware of strangers, right? Beware yeah. of strangers. And, right. and that's exactly. a good bias to have. It can save your life, but it also can make you do things and make decisions, hiring decisions, you know, um, all sorts of different leadership decisions. It can make you make decisions that don't help create a sense of belonging, a sense of equity inside your own companies. And so we have to talk about these things. We have to be aware of them. And so training leaders about bias, you know, a lot of the work we do is founded in design. So we call ourselves an experienced design company and we're just designing the work experience. That's how we, you know, the experience of being led, the experience of going to work every day, like the, everything that that entails, we can use design to solve all sorts of problems. And yeah. the heart of all design begins with empathy. And there's a massive call for empathy. And on the consumer side of companies, we have no problem talking about empathy. We will have empathy for our consumers, for our customers, what they like, what they don't like, what they're feeling, what they're thinking. We will listen to them. We will evolve our products. We'll evolve our services. Why? So we- <laughs> yeah, but a lot of your employees are also consumers. So hello. Yeah, right. But then you say, oh, I also need to have empathy on this side of the house. And I actually have to care about the 3000 people that work here and what they're thinking and feeling. What that no, you know, and so leadership is changing. Like you cannot be a leader from the 80s, 90s, the early 2000s any longer in the ways that we used to lead through command and control and so many other ways. Like that's not how you get to psychological safety and trust. Yeah, somewhat uh, stereotypical feminine qualities. And yet women are leaving more than ever before. You have your life's work and then some, Kevin. <laughs> well, It's interesting to be a small business owner. You know, when I started the company, the consumer side is what brought us out. And then, you know, a couple of years from May, because we just celebrated our 10 year anniversary, May, May of 2012 is when I started Experience Willow. Congratulations. Started In the first two years, we were very much on that customer consumer experience side. And that is an industry that has burgeoned, like it's just growing and growing and growing. And then in 2014, I, I met Andrea at NCR and she was like, hey, you need to come over to the HR side. And since then, 100% of our revenue is focused on this culture and EX um, work. But for me, it always comes back to just being a creative problem solver. I solved problems over here on the consumer side. Now I'm solving them over here on the employer side. I'm going to use design. I'm going to you know, use a design sensibility. I'm going to teach my clients how to be designers and problem solvers. 
And it just so happens as I've done that work now in the last two years, as you know, George Floyd and a lot of the social justice movement has had the upswell, you know, even in my own community, um, my trans brothers and sisters, I, I, I feel for them and their work experiences. But all of that is happening at a time where I'm so glad I'm a designer and I'm so glad I've learned how to have empathy and how to teach empathy because I think it is teachable because it is one of the top skills you have to have as a leader today in the workplace. In fact, I'm I am like waving this flag that the chief executive officer should become the chief empathy officer. The E should go from executive mm -hmm. to empathy. And I hope that CEOs would hear me say that because if you aren't empathetic yourself, your people will not be. They might continue being on the consumer side because you know they have established practices of developing product and services and that empathy comes easily but over here on the employee side there's never been a more important call for leaders to be better listeners communicators conversationalists and at the heart of all that is empathy knowing what people are thinking actually maybe feeling what they're feeling yeah. which is scary for a lot of people you know i love that you focus on empathy and there's a word you used on your website quite often too which is curiosity mm. well since i'm a curious person i thought that's curious how very interesting i wonder how experience will uses curiosity to help clients well, the story behind curiosity and you've heard me use this word several times right already you know i'm a founder and many times the founder story is the company story. So my purpose, which I have articulated, I've attended enough workshops. I now even do uh, purpose workshops myself, helping companies identify their purpose. This is a really big uptick in, in companies identifying kind of a, a purpose, which is both a contribution and an impact. So what is it that you contribute to the world? And what does that do to the world in which you're where you're contributing it? And as I did the work on myself, on my articulating my own purpose statement, the word curiosity, learner, all of that kept coming back at me from just people I worked with, people that I reported into. Um, I did a lots of fun. Like I, I actually started when I was writing and talking and thinking about what Willow was going to be. And I knew it probably was going to be a shared values, a shared purpose story that was going to be at the heart of our company. I knew I needed to identify my own purpose and values. And so... Um, but curiosity was something that kept coming back. The other thing that kept coming back for me was contagious, infectious, which is not the best words during a pandemic, but <laughs> no, exactly. But, but it did. And people talk a lot about my energy when I walk into a room or when I'm part of a conversation, I have, a, especially if I'm, it doesn't matter if I'm positive or negative, that people feel my energy. Yeah. And so I have to do work on myself to make sure that I try to stay as positive as possible in my conversations. Sometimes my frustration <laughs> with some of my clients probably, well, comes, you know, yeah, you're, you're in a, there is a need for what you do, but it is, it's tough work because as you say, we human beings aren't particularly receptive. to. We can say we want to change, but getting us to change, getting us to get on that treadmill, follow the diet, take our meds. I mean, go yeah. through the list of things. We're not very good at it. No, no, we're not. But I am good at being curious and I've been curious my entire life. And I actually think that our, we're born with our purpose. I think we were born exactly in the moment that we were supposed to be here so that when we become business owners, 
we're living it our entire life. And I, my curiosity was with me. My contagious infectionness was with me throughout my life. I knew that that was my contribution to ignite a contagious curiosity in others. I wanted to do that, right? But my impact was something I've been struggling with to articulate until lately, which now I realize my impact is better workplaces, better lives, better work equals better lives. Especially today when we're so many of us that are desk or what we call desk workers or knowledge workers are working from our homes at, in more rates. Right. The energy of work is in our homes. So we need to care about having a great work experience so we don't bring home that energy from work. And you know, we, we want to be fully alive at work, we we want to feel that we want to share that energy with our family and our childrens, and 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 set and be a role model for that kind of employee, absolutely. You know? And so, you know, igniting a cage's curiosity that creates a better world or better lives is my purpose. And I just wrote this blog for Willow. If you went to experiencewillow.com, I wrote about my top five leadership lessons as a small business owner in our first ten years, and. The number two lesson on that particular blog was allow yourself to be led. You're going to be at the top, but you have to be led by something, an idea, a purpose, a vision, and that has to ignite you. And, you know, Angela Duckworth's work around grit shows us that if you have this like goal, this, this, you know, this goal and, and you will do anything to pursue that and you will be and, and it brings you um, it gives you resilience. It gives you energy when maybe you have a you make a mistake or you don't you don't get the piece of business you wanted. That drive is there. And I, I think that you have to be led. And so I'm led by my purpose every day. I find myself screening my clients now. Do they really <laughs> want to get curious? Like, do they really care to yeah. ask why, what, if, what else? Right. Or are they just checking a box? Because right. I don't, I personally don't, and my company doesn't do well with companies and leaders who want to check a box. Right. That is not us. Right. So, right. you know, right. And, and but, that to me is really important. I mean, really important lesson. If, yep. if you know, for, for your listeners out there, allow yourself to be led by something, whatever that is. Right. That is great advice. You know, uh, Kevin, I had a feeling that the hour was going to just absolutely <laughs> zip by. I feel like I could sit and chat with you for another hour, two hours. Um, maybe we'll get you to come back on the show and do a reprise visit. But for now, I want to wrap up by letting you give listeners a chance to hear about how to get in touch with you, learn more about what your company does, and some of the resources and interesting things that are on your website that they might want to check out. Sure. I, our website is our company name, experiencewillow.com. If you go there, uh, the story of our company is pretty prominent right on the homepage. You can click into case studies of work that we've done both in the consumer and the employee space. I'm really focused around a subject matter here in our 10th year. I'm calling it designing for belonging. And so um, we're sort of heading into, I almost want to think of it as a third phase or a third service offering in our business, which is our own intellectual property. So from um, that, um, we're exploring um, me potentially, I've started maybe authoring my first book, Doris. I can't believe that's happening. Oh, good for you. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if it'll have the title designing for belonging, but it is going to be about- I love it though. You know, that's really what it's going to be about. But I am in the meantime, this is a subject matter I'm starting to tour around. I'm, I'm uh, if, you, um, if you follow us on Twitter or on Facebook, 
Um, also on Instagram, you'll see I do a lot of speaking, a lot of hosting, facilitating. Um, and this idea of designing for DEI, designing for belonging is at the heart of all the conversations I'm having really. It's where I'm spending a majority of my time. And uh, you will you can learn more about that at our website as well. And please, if, if, if I've sparked an interest in you, if I've ignited your curiosity, <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via the website and I'll get right back to you. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show this week. It was a delight to have you inspiring. Doris, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I, I look forward to my second business whenever that happens in the future. Well, I look forward to staying in touch because you couldn't see me as we were chatting, but I was nodding and, <laughs> you know, wanting to jump in and add things because I just was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Well, so it was it was really a delight to have you. And thanks to all my listeners. You're the reason I do this. Check out my consulting website, which is globalocityservices.com and my new radio show website, thesavvyentrepreneur.org. You'll find lots of resources for entrepreneurs and small business people there. My door is always open for comments and questions, suggestions, just to shoot the breeze. Email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at thesavvyentrepreneur.org. Be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.